welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Jane Williams. Hi, Jane. Hi. And we're talking today about uh, Jane Williams's co-authored paper with Angus Dawson, which is called Prioritizing Access to Pandemic Influenza Vaccine, a Review of the Ethics Literature. And this is published in BMC Medical Ethics. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Jane, thanks for being here to talk to me. It's very nice to be here talking <laughs> to you. I wonder if you could give us just the kind of um, overview of what this paper is about, because this was a review uh, specifically of ethics literature, yeah. right? Yeah. Elevator pitch is that we did a critical interpretive review um, of the normative literature around how pandemic influenza vaccine should be um, allocated, I guess, how it should be prioritised. And what we found in that review was that there, was, there wasn't all that much consensus. Mm-hmm. So there were um, papers that had all different kinds of arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them were basically utilitarian, um, sort of really broadly speaking, mm-hmm. in that they uh, sort of generally made an assumption that the most important goal was saving the most lives or preventing the most illness. Um, Often that was implied rather than stated. Mm -hmm. And I guess the most common thing was to assume that groups, I guess what they generally call vulnerable groups, by which it could be inferred from the paper that they meant people at highest medical risk, Um, they generally said, do those guys first. So um, if I can just go back a step. And so the reason that we did this review was because uh, Angus and I were both working on um, a project that was commissioned by the Australian government that was about uh, trying to do pandemic planning around how to allocate uh, pandemic influenza vaccine. And so there were a whole bunch of people from different uh, disciplines, you know, so we had a team doing some modeling and some epidemiologists and some virologists and then the ethicists. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're always a little bit sort of tacked on the end there. But the Australian government, uh, like many governments, like many um, well-resourced governments, uh, have really good pandemic plans, but they're all about pandemic influenza, which is um, for a number of reasons, you know, it's the easiest thing to plan for probably, and also it was the most likely pandemic to happen before this pandemic happened. (laughs) Well, it was still the most likely, I guess. So as part of this um, planning process, Angus and I did this review of the ethics literature to see what was out there already. So there was another team looking at other countries' reviews and seeing how they had managed the ethics of it. And, you know, spoiler, they didn't. <laughs> but um, they, so we wanted to do a review only of the normative arguments that had been made in literature for why you would prioritize uh the scarce pandemic vaccine in certain ways. Another point to make here is that um, many countries have uh, existing contracts with a vaccine manufacturer for pandemic influenza vaccine. So there's not the same sorts of issues that are happening around with COVID. So, so there will always be scarcity. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that you can always only make so much vaccine at one time. Mm-hmm. So you will always have to prioritize who gets it first. So. 
I think you just briefly touched on the motivations. Mm. But the motivations were because Australia was doing an overall. Yes. So we had to come up with a plan with a whole bunch of people. We worked uh, on a project. So we weren't, Australia wasn't doing a review. We came up, yeah, no, no. We we did a review to find out what was out there. Uh, And then with these other groups working in different disciplines, we came up with a framework for how to allocate scarce vaccine in Australia in the case of a pandemic influenza outbreak. Right. Yeah. This paper is just the review that that kind of set the stage for that. So to ask a fairly basic question, um, is it the case that most of the literature on pandemics is about the flu? Yeah, it is. And that is for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, pandemic influenza is a likely thing that's going to happen. Um, there are regular outbreaks of pandemic influenza. Um, people assume that there will be another one soon. Um, the other thing is we know that a pandemic influenza vaccine can be ma- manufactured. Right. So when you're talking about resource allocation, that is a conversation that comes up. And it will take time to manufacture it. It's not like seasonal flu where you make it in advance. You know, you have to make it in response to the pandemic strain of influenza. So you can only start making it when the pandemic is circulating in the community and you've got a sample of it. Mm-hmm. But the, it's just a matter of time. Right. It's not like the COVID situation where it's a matter of, well, maybe we can do this right. and maybe it will happen at some point right. in time. <laughs> so generally it takes, um, so the World Health Organization says sort of five to six months. Okay. I think that's based on the 2009 H1N1 could be quicker um yeah interesting so jane what are some of the main points of interest in this paper from your findings mm. so i guess for us what what was most interesting was what wasn't in the literature mm. um and also the assumptions that were made without really unpacking the basis for those So there was a couple of things. There was a lot of discussion about vulnerable groups and and also at-risk groups with very little discussion of what that actually meant. Mm -hmm. And so vulnerability, I mean, of course, there's a huge literature on vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the context of pandemic flu, you know, you can get sick because you have pre-existing medical conditions or because you're a particular age. So, you know, it could be a a medical vulnerability or a sort of demographic vulnerability. If we've got, for example, with COVID, older people faring more poorly. So with the um, 1918 influenza pandemic, it was young adults who were sickest, uh, for example. So often there's a demographic sort of component to it. Um, There are also social vulnerabilities, which weren't really discussed except for in papers that were only about those groups. So you would have some papers who would focus on, for example, why you should prioritise a prison population for pandemic influenza. But in papers that were like, here's how you should do, uh, how you should allocate scarce pandemic vaccine, those groups didn't really appear. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. The other thing was it was all very much focused on North America and Europe. Okay. Um, so that is, I don't 
know, fine, but it wasn't discussed. That was the thing, you know. So there were there, and it was it was also all from a very very narrow time frame. So it was all post SARS. Um, so the papers were all published pretty much between 2005, maybe 2004, and around 2011, when a little bit of post H21 stuff, which was interesting to me because from Canada there was a lot of post SARS um, reflection, but I didn't come across anything really, and maybe because there wasn't a vaccine, but I didn't come across anything from Southeast Asian countries who had done a lot of work um, around SARS and also post-SARS, you know, in pandemic planning more broadly. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting, and I looked, you know, so <laughs> that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that the focus on North America and Europe did was that it didn't really look at geographic uh, issues, if you like, around how to prioritise vaccines. So in Australia, we've got some some interesting situations in that if you wanted to, you could um, do similar to what we've done now and restrict travel mm-hmm. and and protect, uh, say, remote communities from disease that way. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, well, probably in remote communities, disease would spread uh, more rapidly, and so it's important to make sure that those communities are protected. I don't know. There was just a lot about geography and about um, nothing really about access to medical care Mm -hmm. and access to vaccine and how that happens in places where you where logistics are difficult Mm -hmm. which brings me I guess to another point is that there was very little um, incorporation of vaccination with other public health measures Mm -hmm. and so we were thinking Okay, well, so when we were actually doing the plan for the Australian government, we were thinking, well, all of this depends on, you know, how many respirators do you have and where are they and is there an antiviral medication that people can take and um, are we doing social distancing and all of that sort of thing. But none of that's in the literature. The vaccine Mm. is always um, sort of treated as its own little silo and I get that in terms of writing a paper, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make sense in the real world. And that's something that we're seeing right now, hey, with COVID. It's like we're starting to do some work mm-hmm. about who to vaccinate for COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's just really hard <laughs> because there yeah. are so many other things going on. That was actually something that I was thinking about when you were mentioning that the World Health Organization says sort of between five to six months for a flu vaccination. And that's based on the fact that we already have kind of existing flu vaccines. So kind of what happens in those five to six months, but while we're waiting, because, you know, a pandemic flu could be very serious. It could be like right now. So what are we doing in that? Yeah, and that's a really good question because that's not something that's in the literature. And I think... Now, with this current situation, a lot of our thinking that we were doing uh, 2018 and 19 was really naive. (laughs) It's a huge bummer. (laughs) Um, But we, you know, it's funny because I was talking at, so 
um, I was working in Singapore while I was doing a lot of this work and I was talking to colleagues at NUS at the Centre for Biomedical Ethics there talking about how um, you know whether or not it was a good idea to prioritize kids for van- for pandemic flu vaccine and they said why would you do that why wouldn't you just close the schools if kids are spreading flu then just close the schools and I was like what no there's no way we would close the schools <laughs> you know that would that just is a scenario that we are not cut out for and they were saying well in Singapore we have these plans to do that and we have all oh, these wow. lo- oh, yeah I know right um all of these online lo- learning you know platforms in place already and I was like no in Australia no no (laughs) next thing you know (laughs) so that's the sort of naivety I think that I was talking about because it honestly hadn't occurred to any of us Mm -hmm. that there would be that sort of level of social distancing happening pre-vaccine interesting it is interesting and it it is um a lesson learned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess we kind of have to wrap up shortly, <laughs> but I wonder um, if there's a sort of main takeaway, what would you most like people to come away from this paper mm. having understood? Can I talk about two things? Yeah. One is that it was the method that we used was a really useful and I haven't talked about the method Mm. but that was actually something that made it difficult to get published because the reviewers uh, well one of the reviewers and it was reviewer one (laughs) shockingly (laughs) uh, was unfamiliar with the method and I guess therefore didn't like it so with the critical interpretive review we did we cast very widely for papers but it wasn't a systematic search and we did try a systematic search and we missed a lot of the papers that we knew existed in the literature Mm. and I think that makes it I I guess I'm saying this because I would recommend it uh, as as a as as a method for doing a review of the ethics literature I think it's an important tool to have Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm pleased that we got it published. Mm-hmm. Basically, I hope that it makes it easier for other uh, reviews done this way to get published because mm-hmm. I, th- I think actually it's more robust mm-hmm. um, than than a systematic review would have been. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I like about the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, I guess, a takeaway is it's so important to try and consider what's happening in the context of everything else that's happening socially yeah um and and of course medically and epidemiologically and all of that um and i think that is something that the context of these decisions was not taken into into account in the literature Mm. so i don't just mean the context of where it's taking place and so on but also the context of what the pandemic is like um, so there were a lot of sort of arguments made for doing one thing over another thing. But, I mean, uncertainty is like the key thing that characterises a pandemic, right. you know. Yeah. We don't know anything about it. When it starts, we have no idea how it's going to behave or who it will affect or, you know, what will work and what won't work. And, and there's so much uncertainty 
and there wasn't much uncertainty in the literature. I think it could have done with a wee bit more, you know, a, a bit more nuancing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Jane. This has been really cool. Yeah, it was fun. Great. <laughs> and anyone who's interested in reading the paper can find it linked at the bottom of this episode's notes, um, along with a transcript. And thank you so much for listening to the She Research Podcast. You can find us on Anchor. We're now on iTunes. We're on Spotify. And we're on iHeartRadio. You can find us on a variety of platforms. So thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.